welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. And I'm Anne. And today we have Alex. Alex, welcome. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Alex, could you possibly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to be in Manchester? Okay, so I'm a second year PhD student doing PhD in history. I did my undergraduate and my master's at the University of Exeter, both in history there. And basically the focus of my PhD is on, generally at the moment, on Hollywood cinema in 1960s Britain. So looking at sort of more social impacts, cultural impact, what audience were watching, how that related to changed periods. So things like that. So how did you arrive at this topic? I've always had this interest in the 1960s. Uh, one of my first proper sort of adult history books I ever had was uh, Dominic Sandbrook's White Heat. I've had a well battered copy of it for well over 10 years now. The thing, the thing with Sandbrook is he's like taking the narrative of the swinging 60s, this whole idea of social and cultural revolution of the period, and sort of like suggesting, was that the case for everyone of the period? Was that the case for ordinary people? Were they experiencing all the changes in the permissive society then? So that's one of the big things interesting in that, and particularly how he introduces popular culture, looking at television, film, pop music, things like that, and his narrative as examples of that. And for a while, though, I've, um, I mean, I've always been interested in post-war British social history. Some of my favourites, David Kynaston, Peter Hennessy, some of my favourite historians there. But for a while during my undergrad, I was focused on other things. I mean, I've always had this interest in cinema and how that relates to society. So I did actually did my undergrad dissertation on romantic melodrama in 1930s and 40s British cinema culture. So looking at, look like the gains from melodramas, these big wartime films, these very sort of romantic films, and how that related to ideas of star culture and British national identity at the time. But then I was thinking, possibly because I've always had this interest in there's not much been done on the silent era in audience tastes there. So I thought to myself, in the summer after my undergrad, I want to start trying to go for academia, I want to start getting, so I'll give a master's and then get a PhD there. So if I do something on silent era, that might be a bit more difficult there. But then I don't remember the exact day it was, but it must have been around August 2018 when I thought to myself one day, just sort of, it sort of clicked and I thought, why don't I do the 60s? I've had this interest in the 60s for years. There's not much been done on audience taste in cinema in the 60s. So I thought to myself, go for it. And so my master's year, I focused more on, I did an extended essay on representations of sexuality in American and British cinema in the 50s, looking at things like that. My master's dissertation on audience taste in the 60s, looking at how popular genres like comedy films and war films developed, looking at the new wave and the swinging London cycles, but also incorporating bits of New Hollywood in there, the films like Midnight Cowboy and Bonnie and Clyde, and looking at how audiences responded to them. So that's sort of how it got to this point, how now it's sort of particularly focusing on Hollywood cinema, sort of like focusing into wider narratives of Anglo-American relations and Americanization in post-war Britain, but also there's sort of generally because there's a lot done on British cinema at the moment, but there hasn't been so much done on how Hollywood received in this period. So that's where I come in. I think that's great. I think I've always found the UK, there's a fascination with American pop culture in general. I and mean, I guess this goes back to the period that you're studying. Um, did you find you were able to watch some kind of new films of this era? Or were you kind of already familiar with Hollywood films of the 1960s? I've always been interested in like old films, classic films and that. But um, again, looking specifically at films for this particular period, some of the films that I don't want to say forgotten by history, but the, you look at like the box office surveys for the most popular films of the period, and there's some there's some classics in there, it's like the big in the sixties, like the Bond films. They're all massive. Mary Poppins and the Jungle Book. They're all massive hits in the period. But if you go further down the list, there's some films that 
might not be so widely remembered. There's um, a lot of interesting ones, both Hollywood and British films, because that's partially what my thesis is doing. It's fulfilling both what Hollywood was doing that Britain wasn't, in that sense, and what Britain fulfilled that Hollywood couldn't. So there is definitely, um, I think I've watched at least 100 films so far for it. Some films I haven't seen, some films I have seen before and looking at it with new perspectives. I mean, I've seen some films that have been really good. Other films have just been like, oh my God, well, how was this popular? And I think almost you look at that and you look at some works, I think is not necessarily for the 60s, but other periods. I think Richard Farmer's work on cinema in the, in the Second World War, there's almost sneering, sort of snobbery towards films like popular films like Arthur Askey and Old Mother Riley and the British comedies of the period. So let's say, oh, how were these ever popular? And saying that maybe we don't know, but maybe they just were. That's what I'm trying to avoid in this sense, even though there are some dreadful films of this period. And I've had to sit through some dreck, but that's what it is that's what research is if you don't have to watch it that's just you're not getting the full picture i'm a bit jealous it sounds like fun research getting to watch films although i'm sure there are like you mentioned a lot that are not so fun to watch <laughs> it's awkward well because you've got to get past values dissonance of some films there's um, a lot of films out there that don't have the same moral values it's, they're quite racist and sexist in their views and other ones which are just like there's one film in particular, right in 1970, there's this film called The Adventurers. It was quite a big hit, not one of the absolutely massive hits of the year, but I watched it. It's three hours long, it's basically, oh god, if I go into all the details of it, but it's basically this narrative of this South American dictator in the post-war, this, this boy whose father is like, almost overthrown in rebellion, he grows up to be like this multi-millionaire playboy, sleeping with women everywhere, and goes back to his country and starts gunning down rebels. The whole thing's completely insane. It's, it's almost so bad it's good in that sense. But that's the sort of film that's been forgotten by the historians. If they're all falling over themselves to talk about, say, Room at the Top and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the new wave films. Films like that that were widely popular, they often don't get talked about, so... That's hopefully what I'm going to try and do. That's so interesting in, you know, what movies were actually popular at the time and had big viewing figures and discrepancy with movies which are actually memorable and remembered. And when we think back to the 60s, which movies, you know, we actually think of looking back now. I mean, absolutely. Obviously, I'm going to have to talk about the big ones, like New Hollywood comes in right at the end of the period in the 60s, starting off with Bonnie and Clyde in 67. Probably the biggest level of research I've done so far is on British responses to Bonnie and Clyde, which is a fantastic film, absolutely brilliant film. I've seen it before, but watching it again for this was really sort of being able to pick out the little details and thinking, this really is brilliant. But again, half the joy of it is... Not so much actually watching the film, but also seeing what they were thought of at the time. So there's looking at it, like the responses to the film in the press. Some of the reviewers really liked it. A lot of the, um, one of the big problems with cinema in this period is that we don't have a lot of sources for public interest. There's only a few ledgers of admissions for particular cinemas. And obviously at the moment I can't get to all of them because the archives lack of access to them. There's not many social surveys of mass observation that largely finished its work by the 60s. So there isn't the big work on things like Worktown that are done for the 30s and 40s. So there's not much there. But there are some things, like Bonnie and Clyde, there were some... I mean, I do have to look at things like the Daily Mail for this thing, but that's just inevitable. But there's things like letters from respondents, people who've seen the film, young people's views on the film. And those are the sort of things that I think what I'm trying to look for, even if they're few and far between. But um, but you do get a league spectrum of things like there's this police cadet who said, I thought the film was awful. There's this unemployed man who said that they just killed police officers, didn't they? And there's sort of like this, not so much moral, moral problem with that, but it's definitely sort of like, you go down the scale, you go for more working class appeal. It's 
definitely to be more found in more working class audiences. And the cinema at the time, you look at the demographic appeal of the audience, the demographic nature of the audiences in the 50s, the cinema is still predominantly dominated by women. But in the 60s, the audience is increasingly younger, it's increasingly more male, it's increasingly working class. So by the end of the decade, by like 1968-69, there are very few older people going to the cinema on a regular basis. And I think almost the other problem with that is saying this big stereotype of young lovers, young courting couples going to the cinema and trying to do unmentionable things in the back of the stalls and that's almost a stereotype of that and almost like saying well that's one thing in itself there's like surveys of like people like michael schofield and the sexual behavior of young people at the time and the cinema does come into it they do mention that going to the cinema this act of courtship this social ritual within them but i mean it's fascinating stuff obviously but i'm more interested in what they were or weren't watching so that's my focus and you mentioned that it became more of a working class activity to go to the cinema so was it quite an accessible activity? Because I know even now going to the cinema can be quite expensive for some people. So I'm curious about how or if that's changed. I think mainly it's more like geographical availability of cinemas because in the 60s there was still it was quite dominated by the two big cinema chains abc and odeon which were owned by the two big british film distributors associated british picture corporation the rank organization so they controlled about a third of the major cinemas in the country and they also controlled a lot of the film supply so so if there was a film that didn't get a booking on either of the main circuits then it would be unlikely to receive a wide release so and then some cinemas in some towns for instance they only had an ABC or an Odeon and of course that in itself was divided by studios so ABC carried films from MGM and Warner Brothers and Paramount whilst Odeon carried Columbia and United Artists and Disney and 20th Century Fox and Universal so there was definitely if there was only one cinema of a particular type in that town then that's bad luck I think in pricing availability as well, the nine pennies, the nine pence, the stalls and that. But there's obviously, there's the one and nines, which is more quality seats of that as well. It's definitely quite accessible for most of the period, even then. I think part of my research, right at the beginning of the 70s, right at the end of the period, you start seeing people complaining, you get less value for your money. What's happened to like the continuous program, you used to have like the support, the main feature, the B feature, program short subjects as well. And, but nowadays you're just paying for one feature and you're not getting enough value for money. At the same time, there's also, there's this big difference between the reserve ticket attractions, the big films, and the general releases. So general release is sort of like the one you could just go in off the street and say, oh, fancy night out of the pictures. You can go in there, you'll pay your money, and you'll get a seat in there. But the reserve ticket ones, these are the big musicals, the period like Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and Camelot and other things like Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. They all received big first run, had to buy tickets in advance, runs in the big cities as well. I remember actually I was speaking to my grandparents as well on their honeymoon in London in 1965. They wanted to go and see My Fair Lady in the West End, but it was all booked up. So they went to see Genghis Khan instead. It's, um, it's little things like that. It's just sort of like little tidbits things like that but generally it's also not so much as well the economic things well but also more the content of the films so in the 50s there's this big narrative of middle class domination in British cinema so you look at films like the war films the doctor in the house the big comedies like that they are rather middle class based and you're right at the end of the decade at the start of the new wave you see films like as I said room at the top and the taste of honey and films like a kind of loving and films like that films that start to portray the working class more on screen so there's more of an appeal to it they are definitely popular but whether or not it's because family entertainment's still massive you still look at disney and film 
Neon period, that's still massive. Like 1960, there's films like Doctor in Love. The carry-ons as well, they'll gaining traction in this period so and again I think partially that's where Hollywood comes in as well I think Herbert Gans did his study in the early 60s about what British audiences why they are so attracted to American films and the, one of the big reasons for that is that American films fulfill these aspiration fantasies of working class audiences in a sense that American films provide working class audiences with this outlet to realize their personal desires on screen whereas middle class British cinema that doesn't allow them to do that. So it's definitely all about, definitely all the factors coming together. You've mentioned talking to your grandparents. Have you at all considered, and I know this is not possible, you know, at the moment, but maybe like as a postdoc doing an oral history, because I guess that's one of the ways you can get experiences of those audiences and opinions of those audiences on those movies. Well, funny you should mention that. There is actually, um, I think a few years ago, Melvin Stokes and Matthew Jones at UCL, they actually did a major oral history project of cinema going in the 60s, looking at going actually to interviewing people and sending in questionnaires of generally sort of getting social backgrounds, all part of big cinema culture, big questions like, did you go to any of the big cinema chains? Did you have any follow particular stars? But again, there's big questions there. They have particular aims in their studies. They're like specific questions asking about do you remember the kitchen sink realism films the early 60s? Do you remember the swing London films? And also things like, did you have an experience with world cinema in that period? One of their big articles that came out of that, they looked at British responses to filmmakers like Kurosawa and Bergman and the French New Wave and Goddard and things like that. But if there's discussion of Hollywood films and stars, it comes out in their narrative. There's no real provision for it in Stokes and Jones's original questions. They're more focused on more engagement with British cinema goers in the world, the more cinema goes within that domestic cinema culture and not so much with the outside influence of Hollywood. I mean, obviously it does come out and the, and the resources are still very useful. You get some very, sometimes if you, all the materials are available online, but if you go through them, sometimes you get some very snarky, boomerish responses about saying, this is a stupid question. That's all amusing. <laughs> but um, but again, that's also the problem with memory as well, from people saying, I can't honestly remember. And whether or not that's because cinema going in this period might become more ephemeral it was more of a social activity more than just to experience the films themselves and well that's the case obviously there is some memory of it but i prefer to look at it within the time of it the audience's responses were at the time and i know now we have you know podcasts and youtube channels talking about movies all the time have you found kind of records of this in the 1960s like the conversation around film kind of in a more inclusive way i suppose one of the other big themes of my thesis is looking at representation of cinema on television so from the 1960s onwards 1964 we see bbc2 launching and i think ewan franklin's done work right early on we see world cinema being broadcast late at night on the channel so even then it's got the limited response to it there's limited availability because throughout the 60s there's bbc2 in some regions we don't get until like two years afterwards i don't think north of england gets until 1966 but again it's still widely seen as the minority channel for more culturally inclined almost compared to the more mainstream things of BBC One and ITV but there's definitely film discussion going on the radio at the time there's film programs on the BBC Light program on Radio 2 there's predominantly more mainstream discussions of it there's also late night discussions on late night lineup as well I think it's the availability of broadcasting coming into more there is more wider discussion of cinema and not simply in Hollywood but also British cinema and world cinema coming into that 
throughout the decade and into the 1970s, we start seeing more of that. But with the public, for instance, there's, I think from mainly what we can go on, is more the memories of it. I unfortunately have not been able to really find so much material on public discussions on cinema at the time, if only apart from what was in the memories. I think Patrick Glenn's done sort of looking at memories of cinema going, so like countercultural cinema going, but I haven't been able to find a huge deal of that at the moment. Do you think that with popularity of Hollywood cinema growing, some of its trends, some of its tropes then leaked into British cinema? I think there is part of that. Often a big question that is finance, really. With her in the mid-1960s, Hollywood starts thinking, hmm, we can capitalise on British subjects. And so they start pumping money into British productions. Particularly right at the end of the decade, we start seeing things like big Anglo-centric films like Battle of Britain and Half a sixpence, goodbye, Mr. Chips, they come in. But they don't do particularly well in the US. But they do well in the UK. I think Battle of Britain's like the biggest film in 1970 in the UK. But once they realise that Hollywood is changing within the American domestic context, the films like Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they are now the big hits. The American public don't want the bloated, big-budget epics, so the Americans pull the plug on the funding. And partially, that at least does attribute a big fact to the decline of the British cinema in the 1970s. There's still a lot of it going on, but the 70s is really the sort of the last period where you'll see British films at the cinema on a regular basis. There is almost the idea of British films being pigeonholed into Britishness at the time. We start seeing being the adaptations of sitcoms, like the adaptations of On the Buses and Steptoe and Son. They're massive in the early 70s. We start seeing films like costume dramas and sex comedies as well, all within British subjects, whereas Hollywood, for instance, they are taking on sort of wider international scope with films like The Godfather and films like that. Later on in the decade, we start seeing the rise of the blockbuster with Jaws and Star Wars and Superman all being massive. So I think it isn't so much Britain trying to adapt Hollywood tropes to it. I mean, there is partially that within Hollywood trying to adapt, like, say, the spy genre, for instance. After the success of the Bond films, Hollywood began taking films like The Man from Uncle and Our Man Flint and the Matt Helm series. They're all very much in the Bond mould, all very much girls and gadgets and colourful settings and big bad organisations trying to destroy the world. Whereas at the same time, British cinema with films like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The It Press File and Funeral in Berlin, they're taking on a more darker approach to the genre. And partially that might be because of budget, that might be because of scepticism within the establishment. But there is definitely a difference. But by the end of the decade, it's very much British films for British audiences, whereas Hollywood films for everyone, for international audiences, that's generally how it is. And what's your favourite film? What? Ever, or of the period. Both? I mean, there is a bit of overlap. There's, um, I mean, I do love Bonnie and Clyde. I wouldn't say it's one of my favourite films, but there's, um, like, David Lean's Dr. Zhivago. That's a film I absolutely love. It's a massive one. One, it's a classic, classic drama. From the early 70s, A Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece. It's it's controversial, I know, but I remember watching that the first time. First time I watched that Christmas Day 2012 when I got my new Blu-ray player for Christmas and happy Christmas for me. <laughs> and there's Ken Russell's The Devils. That's another massively controversial film and it's Clockwork Orange and The Devils that actually cause a big moral outcry against violence and sex and cinema at that period. But I personally love both of them. I really enjoy watching them. But generally there's... Um, later on in the decade. I mean, I'm a huge Monty Python fan, so Monty Python, The Holy Grail, and Life of Brian, they're two of my favourite comedy films. So, But I've got quite a few. We'd be here all day if I talked about all the films I love. So, And I guess kind of, you might have the same answer for this question, but if you could go back and watch one of these films in a cinema in the 1960s, as you understand it, what 
film would that be? Oh, that's a tough one. What context would that be? Which film would I want to go and see My Fair Lady or Lawrence of Arabia on one of the big screens in London in 70mm and stereo sound and all of that? Or would I just want to go back to this little suburban cinema, a flea pit almost. Not one of the more well-known ones where the circuit changed, a bit run down to see a carry-on or a Disney film or something like that. What the everyday cinema girl would have to experience. And I don't, I honestly don't think I could give a definite answer to that question. There's just so many I'd want to see, whether I want to see big films on the big screen or just go to a little cinema and see an everyday film. It's, it's a big question. Sure. And it, that's the thing, going to the cinema, it's not just about what you're watching, it's about the whole experience. It's something I've missed a lot during COVID and I'm sure you have as well it makes it such a more enjoyable experience oh definitely I mean one of the other things I love is like on YouTube there's big things of videos of like the old advert reels and things like that saying adverts for like you know Pearl and Dean, of course this big advertiser in cinemas at the time so um, you look on YouTube it's like the old 35mm or 60mm reels of that advertising Lions Made Ice Cream and Butter Kissed Popcorn and Kiora Orange Drink and things like that. And that's what audiences would have gone to see in the cinema. They actually, um, there's a guy on YouTube, he's, um, I forget his name, but um, he's done proper trailer reels for four of the films. Like he's done, he's like replicated the 35mm with all the grain scratches on um, list of, on list of reel of adverts and trailers before what you might have seen before, Jaws and Back to the Future. So I really enjoy watching them. I watched Jaws the other week, watching the old ad reels before then. It was, I think it really added something, even if it was just to see like Frankie Howard advertising cigars or Frank Muir advertising Cadbury's Fruit and Nut before then. I think it added something. And I think, I honestly didn't go to cinema much even before lockdown started. I think the last last film I saw in the cinema was, oh god, I think it was Spider-Man Homecoming in 2017. And that was only because a friend said, why don't we go and see that? And um, I thought, yeah, why not? But even then, I've got memories of going to there and seeing all the adverts for local businesses and the trailers and then and the tango ice blast of course and oh fantastic uh, there's um there's actually a garage on my road the hell's ice blast but i haven't dared gone into them so do you find you keep up with contemporary film as well i know you're probably you spend a lot of time watching movies but in your free time do you watch any more newer movies i mean partially i'm i'm actually not that interested in modern films there's a lot of them um, i get on youtube and that because i watch a lot of youtube and film critics on youtube as well but i remember these fan videos and all this anger against like the new star wars trilogy and seeing the marvel universe and i can't go on my youtube feed without seeing one video saying saying like what wonder woman 1984 got wrong or things like that or or all the problems with everyday hollywood with hollywood in these day and age but Again, if you look at things like all this mad rush for sequels and looking at marketing strategies, that's nothing really new. Hollywood's been remaking films since the silent era in the 30s, so there's nothing really new. I think it is almost democratising film culture. Everyone on YouTube can now have, have a camera. They can talk about their thoughts on films on YouTube. and I think that's marvellous. I think it's wonderful. But so you can actually get the opinion of everyday cinema goes rather than just the critics and the press, which is unfortunately not the case with my thesis, but hey, hey, what can you do? But I think with that, I do try and keep up with some of what modern films are going on. I always follow the Oscars to see what films win, but I mean, partially because I'm also really interested in quizzing and I always like to have the facts for that. But I haven't watched that many modern films recently, partially because I've been, I've got a long list of films for my thesis still to watch. So I'll probably be watching some of them over this weekend. So I think I don't want to lose track with modern with modern cinema. I don't want to lose track with what modern Hollywood's doing. I follow news and that. I found it interesting because last year, I think about 44 million annual cinema admissions to the British box office. But um, I found it interesting because like seeing, because of course with the lockdown and 
closure of cinemas going on, I thought, are we going to have a new record for the lowest or for the year with the fewest annual admissions that records began? And it turns out, yes, we did. But before then, 1984 was the lowest audience. They had about 54 million that year. But compare that with 1946, the immediate high point of the cinema, over one and a half billion admissions that year. And in the 60s, this is the last period before cinema admissions go below 200 million a year. We start off at like half a million, rather half a billion. Then we go down gradually, but before reaching absolute low in the mid 80s. But then you see in the culture then this like the end of almost the high street cinema and then you start seeing the multiplexes come in. So... We always ask our guests to tell us something maybe funny or something cheerful that made them feel better about their research and brought a smile to their face. Do you have anything like that to tell us? It's a good question, actually. I've already gone through some of the films I've seen and how they're utterly insane. But I think one of the other good things about it is like one of the big sources I'm looking at is fan letters and magazines. So one of the big things is like seeing this interaction between everyday cinema goers sending into fan magazines like Picture Goer and ABC Film Review and things like that, expressing their opinions on films and saying, oh, I love X star or oh, that film was utterly dreadful films like that and there's just a load of gems i've found it's like partially changing attitudes as well but also because, so because of some people just getting so uptight or so so deranged about particular topics there's um i got a lot of these for um been my master's research as well because um when i did exeter they had this marvelous place called the bill douglas cinema museum because a lot of these fan magazines aren't digitized online you either have to go to london to the bfi or well, actually with abc film review there's like loads of copies of old magazines going dirt cheap on ebay so I have managed to pick up a few along the way. That's one of my big interests, is like seeing little opinions about films, maybe forgotten by history, but attracted the um, attention of people back then. It's like saying, for example, there's um, one from 1967. It's the old um, Hammer, old film, One Million Years BC. It's the one with all the... Ray Harryhausen and the animatronic dinosaurs and Raquel Welch in a fur bikini. There's one person in Blackpool that said, I'm wondering if Hammer is serious about this. All characters and events in this film are fictional and any resemblance to real persons is purely coincidental when it's about the dinosaurs. Things like that. There's like little snarky comments about that I'm saying over... I think there's one I remember from now, also from 1967, that's, um, that's a bit ironic in all sense. It's like saying... I forget the exact words of it, but it's along the lines of why can't people understand that stop psychoanalyzing Batman and bond and just accept the fact that that's what people like and so 50 years down the line i'm doing that exact same thing it's like why i don't know everybody has a prequel or a backstory origin story now <laughs> absolutely absolutely gotta start somewhere what strikes me a lot of the time when i look adult cinema is the fact that a lot of the trends of you know remaking the old stuff going for the plots that everyone already knows and loves they were already there like the kind of things that we were complaining about because you know lots of movies that are now being remade were actually remakes of you know movies from the earlier era and it's remarkably old and that's just so interesting definitely i think um what's the example i thought of you know a star is born for that example you start seeing that's I think the Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper version, that is the fourth one of them, because you've got Janet Gaynor and Frederick March in the 30s, you've got Judy Garner one in the 50s, and of course you've got the Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson one in the 70s. It's just like, it's a very similar story of Hollywood trying to trying to make it big in Hollywood related to that, or big musicians, things like that. I think that's what draws people back and said, people complain about the tropes, but I think partially it's familiarity as well, it's what 
I mean, some might say familiarity breeds contempt, but that's almost what uh, sometimes what people want. They want to be reassured by the cinema. They, I mean, in the 60s, that might be the case as well. There's definitely films out there that challenge their worldview, the new wave films and the swinging London films. They come into it, but I think ultimately what most people want, they want escapism, they want reassurance, they want Disney and comedies and spy films and things like that they want films that will entertain them if they get films out there that will um that will say oh dear that's a bit nasty they'll come out of the cinema thinking about it that might be good for them but at the same time that's a big difference between what film and tv want film they want escapism they want spectacle they want the experience of going to the cinema something that tv and the other forms of popular culture just can't give them that feels like a very good point to say thank you very much, Alex. Thank you so much for being our guest. No, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. We enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Anne, for stepping in and co-hosting. Happy to do it. And thank you very much to our listeners for listening. Do remember, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.